0: Today, on the Daily Scoop Podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new strategy for personnel in the Pentagon for the workplace of the future and the stumbling blocks to watch when OMB tells you what to do next. It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop Podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Some programming notes. Tomorrow, the Daily Scoop Podcast pauses for Thanksgiving. You'll get a brand new show coming Monday, November 28th. You can find that show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co/psh. The war in Ukraine is forcing the Defense Department to rethink the future of warfighting. The building's especially concerned with kinetic warfare and cyber. Dan Sitterly is president and CEO of Sitterly Alliance Solutions. He's former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Dan, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. The rethinking that the department is undertaking obviously will demand a rethinking of the people and the skills that those people have in order to execute on whatever the mission is that presents itself. What do you think that folks in the building are or should be thinking about as they're undertaking all of that? Welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Francis. Good day. Uh, It's always a pleasure to be here. It's a great article um, in a current sort of a conflict that forces you to think about whether we have the right force structure, whether we have the right talents uh, and how we're utilizing those. You know, when I first joined the military in the mid-1970s, we talked about a revolution in military affairs. It was sort of a -a once-in-a-lifetime revolution at that point from massing large formations in trench warfare in World War I, then over to strategic aerial bombing uh, in World War II. And then in the 90s, the technology began increasing so rapidly as we started thinking about advancements in military technology and how we use long range precision weapons, intelligence sensors, command and control, and those sorts of things. And so it seems that uh, we now have a revolution in military affairs, uh, you know, once a conflict. Uh, And today it seems like uh, we're using new technologies, hypersonic, cyber, non-state actors, all of the things mentioned in the article. Uh, Yet the defense personnel system remains largely a legacy of the Cold War model uh, that is sort of focusing on the idea of generating massive forces Uh, with large supporting forces. It's about the same personnel system, honestly, as when my father joined the Air Force in 1954. You know, the promotion system is largely hierarchical uh, based on time served, uh, you know, fitness standards, health standards, age restrictions. Uh, We're focused on recruiting in high schools. And so I think that when you look at the talent and the skills that we're seeing used in, in sort of this asymmetric warfare uh, in this Ukraine um, situation, we should take a look and step back and see what a new personnel system would look like, Francis.
0: The article that I flagged for you and that you referenced a moment ago is Mark Pomelo's piece on DefenseScoop.com, How the War in Ukraine is Forcing DOD to Think Differently About Armed Conflict and Cyber's Impact. And I sent that to you because of exactly what you just described. And it strikes me that it's it's not reasonable to think that we're going to just scrap the whole thing and start over, I know. But if we were going to clean sheet it, Dan, what makes sense for 2022 as far as personnel goes and building a system that will support whatever the warfighting mission is, whether it's a state actor as an adversary or a non-state actor as an adversary, and more importantly, what supports potentially that mission in 2030 and 2050 and beyond?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Francis. And I think the article gets at not only the talent that we have available in the pool uh, to our military forces, but also how we integrate um, our commercial uh, sort of talent into that, how we uh, get at um, sort of getting the talent for some of the high end uh, critical skills that frankly are hard to get for the commercial sector as well. And so I think that, um, for instance, the reserve forces are largely uh, born out of the legacy of World War Two, uh, where they were to be used when we had a large scale conflict. You call them up, go and use them, and then they go home. Today, we use the reserve forces. In some cases, um, they're the only force that has mission capability within some sets. So maybe we look at that as a model and, and have a full time active military force and a part-time active military force uh, where the pay and the benefits are sort of comparable, uh, but you can get better access to where the talent exists. The last time we were together, we talked about the recruiting crisis that the DOD had, and frankly, um, it's not solved. And we missed the target this fiscal year uh, by about 15%, the army missed it um, by almost 60%, I understand. And so we have to think about how do we access the talent to be able to use uh, in the Department of Defense in the whole of national security. And so I think, you know, we have, for instance, in the cyber warrior career field, we have cyber warriors doing everything from uh, managing IT inventory asset management to uh, managing email accounts to the hardcore, what we would think of of, as cyber defensive networks, uh, cyber on the battlefield, exploitation, those sorts of things. And so I think we need to look at how do we put some of that into the commercial sector or to our DOD civilian force and refocus the military, the uniform force on those things that they need to do uh, on the battlefield. You know, Ash Carter uh, did lots of reforms in the personnel system, uh, one of which was to reduce the tooth to tail uh, ratio, if you will. Uh, but we've still got a long ways to go. And somehow we have to figure out how you integrate our commercial partners, our you know public private sector partnerships uh, into being able to provide national security um, uh, sorts of labor as well as. Uh, focus on the military, folks on the battlefield.
0: With all due respect to you and your fellow airmen, Dan, uh, the Army has done a couple of things to try to address at least some of the points that you just raised. They separated the CIO office and G6, um, I want to guess it's like two or three years ago, although I know Raj Iyer will correct me if I'm wrong, and Bruce Crawford listens to this program too, so I imagine he'll let me know if I got the numbers wrong. And They've also implemented uh, a new human resources system which is aimed not so much at recruitment but at retention, at helping uh, uniform service members understand what their options are and let the service know what they're interested in doing to advance their careers, thereby theoretically keeping them in uniform longer. Um, at what point can we gauge those efforts to determine whether they're hitting the marks that you proposed regarding shifting some of the IT operations to either civilians or commercial and doing more to keep folks around once we've identified the talents and skills and and the quality of the people that we want to keep.
1: Yeah, I think all of the services are, are sort of looking at that. I think um, we're probably fortunate in that we've had sort of sequential uh, revolution in military affairs and it hasn't all happened at once and so the cio is looking at that uh, there are other um, sort of digital engineering experts are looking at it a little bit differently uh, but we also need to look at you know maybe we don't want to retain everybody uh, in every skill set and so you know, the recent change to the retirement system in the military Uh, Although if you were there at the time and lived through the transition, you probably weren't in love with. uh, But it has been up until that point an all or nothing military force. You either serve 20 years and get some retirement or you serve less than that and get zero retirement. And so I think there are efforts there to, uh, to maintain some sort of portability, if you will, in and out of the system. But again, you know, you, you have to um, live within the system, the personnel system that exists. And we have essentially... Um, a position uh, talent management within the military and the DOD civilians are no different. Uh, we bring you in according to the position that we need you to fill, not in accordance with the talent that you bring to it. And so I think we need more portability of people coming in and out of the system. You could leave for four years and come back. Uh, there are pilot programs out there that do some of that. But in large part, we're taking baby steps. And I would just advocate uh, that we start taking bigger steps and be more aggressive on how we do some of these things.
0: How do we judge in that environment whether being more aggressive is effective? I imagine it's not as simple as just measuring billets filled.
1: Uh, It's not. I think you have to uh, have outcomes. And I think that's a, a criticism I would have, too, is that we don't have a very robust database decision uh, making on the personnel systems that we have in place within the DoD. And so how do you know uh, what is and isn't working in large part? It's you know funding sources, it's you know filling seats and those sorts of things. I think you know we need a, a better metrics uh, system for tracking what are the successes and what are the things that we're looking for and the outcomes that we're looking for.
0: Dan Sitterly, a great conversation as always. I appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thank you. As always, Francis, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: You can read more about the workforce of the future at the Pentagon in today's show notes at Podcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Secret Service needs a better plan for implementing cybersecurity guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. The Government Accountability Office did a deep dive on the Secret Service's compliance. Dan Chenick is Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former Branch Chief for Information Policy and Technology at OMB. Dan, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Where is it that agencies, organizations, and government usually go wrong, usually have challenges? in implementing guidance from OMB on things like this. Welcome.
2: Well, thanks, Francis. Always great to, to be with you. So your question presumes that OMB has gotten the guidance perfectly right, <laughs> which um, having been the author of or, or the overseer of many guidance documents during my time there isn't always the case. Um, you know, uh, So ha- having a dialogue with the agencies before the guidance is issued is really important. So we used to try to put our guidance to the CIO Council um, for, for feedback so that we could make sure that, that the kinks were, and it was implementable in the agencies. And so oh, having OMB follow a good process is important for enabling agencies to then uh, track that. Um, then the agencies sometimes will uh, uh, address guidance by sort of figuring out what's the, what's the minimum viable product, if you will. Um, uh, to respond, and they'll try to say, what do we need to do just to kind of check the boxes? And if OMB has done its job well, its guidance is um, addresses a significant issue, and the Zero Trust Memorandum certainly did, implementing the uh, executive order. Um, You know, there's significant focus on um, uh, increasing agency cybersecurity posture to address all elements, uh, technology, data, managerial operational authentication as part of a zero trust strategy. And so um, as agencies implement that, taking, taking it to account and making sure that it's not just the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, and the CIO who are um, taking their responsibility seriously, but also working across the program offices because the those are the users of the technology and often the The weaknesses, especially if you're thinking from a zero-trust perspective, it could be the interface between users and the program manager. Um, It could be the back-end interface between an agency system and, let's say, a bank and a financial program. Uh, So there's many places across the information lifecycle that agencies need to think about in terms of implementation of guidance documents. And they sometimes run into issues, and people like GAO will... We'll kind of look across all of those spaces and agencies kind of think, just need to think methodically. All right, let's start at the beginning of the process and let's track through each part of the information lifecycle and um, see if we can apply.
0: Does OMB have much visibility into those lower levels of each agency's organization, like at the program management level?
2: So it's impossible for OMB to get really retail um, at, at an agency level. So Uh, They, um, you you know, OMB will often have people that are experts, especially when the technology office, the OFCIO is working with its budget office counterparts, and they're the ones who are going to have the deeper expertise within the agencies um, to understand sort of, you know, who the people are to implement that. Uh, Typically, OMB will kind of, I won't say audit, but they'll kind of look at major programs, when there's an issue that arises, that's a problem. They'll they'll get brought in, but no, they're not the trackers of the implementation at every step.
0: So you said that the success of this it depends on some level at o, uh, on OMB getting the guidance right. When that doesn't happen, where where's what's usually the shortfall there, Dan? Uh,
2: that you know ha- and and uh, most of the time OMB does do a, an excellent job. I, I don't want to uh, minimize. <laughs> that uh, or or accept or increase the, the chance that it didn't uh unnecessarily but there are times when things need to get out quickly that um you know not necessarily don't have time to kind of check with all the folks that should be checked with to make sure that things are are done in a way that can be implemented well at the agencies and are addressing the the significance and depth of the problem um so um uh what we often try to do is also have a bit of an open dialogue both before and after the guidance document was issued so We would often, um, occasionally, I should say, amend a guidance document that was issued. An example I can think of is um, we had a a privacy issue uh, in the Clinton at the end of the Clinton administration with regard to some websites that were being used by the Office of National Drug Control Policy to check on the sort of how they're at their. Programs were doing in terms of reducing drug use among child, kid populations and, and interest in drugs. And they were using the websites at, at that time for, for pr- tracking website use for um, and cons- being consistent with privacy was early days at that time. And there were some uh, missteps being that were done. And so OMB came out with a policy document that tried to say, here's what agencies need to follow. And in that policy document, they said, you know, the cookies. So the, the things that are basically used um, on the web to track uh, uh, traffic, which is uh, we often called cookies, at least in in um, in the first couple of decades of the Internet. Um, uh, w- the, there were significant constraints on that for the government, and that posed a, an issue for service delivery, the, con- the level of constraints. So we had to come out with another document later that sort of amended the first document that was done pretty quickly to address a problem.
0: I want to wish you a happy anniversary. Uh, It's coming up on December 17th. It's the 20th anniversary of the passage of the EGOV Act, and it was pretty cool, I have to say, to sit next to you as one of the authors of that uh, at ELC when Suzette Kent, the Sunday evening opening event of ELC this year, and Suzette was on stage with Margie Graves and Maria Rote and Renee Wynn and NSC Miller talking about this. And Karen Evans was supposed to be there. couldn't be. She got COVID and we missed her a lot. But I was sitting next to you. And as Suzette was reading the beginning, the opening language from the EGOV Act, you leaned over and you kind of whispered, yeah, we used to call that the preamble. And I thought <laughs> that was just a really cool way of describing that, thinking of the Constitution analogy. And it struck me as Suzette was reading it, that's held up for 20 years. Was that the intent or were you just stating what the point of that legislation was as you saw it in that day and time? Were you trying to write something that was going to kind of exist for a long period of time?
2: Well, anytime you work on a statute, you want it to have durability. Um, and that was a fantastic panel. Talk about five leaders of our industry um uh across multiple decades. And uh, you know, happy to see Suzanne, Suzette reading from the statute. Um and at the time, there were kind of two goals. One was to set in to kind of set in motion uh, a statute that brought the government into what had then sort of become accepted as the the new internet age. So there hadn't been a, a an IT statute written since Klinger-Cohen, which was you know very early in the in the evolution of the internet in 1996, when it was finally enacted. Um, and it was that was primarily setting out the responsibilities of agency chief information officers and sound IT management. Uh, the eGov Act was more about like, how do we kind of turbocharge, if you will, if, if a statute can do that, um, uh, government activities, and also uh, give a framework for some of the activities that the Bush administration has had been introducing through uh, its e-government initiatives, known then as Project Quicksilver. And um, the durability is both that the the position in OMB that was framed as the e government administrator at the time is now known primarily as the federal chief information officer, Claire Matarana, but is still statutorily actually the e gov administrator, um, has, has held up. And a number of the programs that were enshrined in that uh, statute are also still going. Um, uh, you know, the um, uh, USA.gov was codified in the EGOV Act, the the portal, the the program of the portal. Uh, Regulations.gov was was noted in the EGOV Act. Importantly, some of the privacy guidance that I mentioned before, the the experience from the ONDCP cookie um, uh, experience, that went into the writing of privacy provisions in in the EGOV Act that then led to privacy guidance, including uh, the the use of privacy impact assessments by agencies that have been built on uh, since then. So there were a number of elements of the statute that although we probably didn't intend at a specific level for each element to exist, uh, tw- you know, decades later, um, uh, were done in a way that agencies could implement effectively.
0: I ask folks a lot on this show, how would you measure success at some point in the future? 20 years is probably enough future to judge whether something has been a success. I'm going to guess with the call outs that you just made, and understanding the context of them as they've evolved over the last twenty years, you would probably call the EGOV Act a success.
2: I would say, on the whole, um, yes. There were parts of the statutes provisions where some of the codified um, uh, programs have not survived uh, until today. Um, there was uh, there were parts of the statute that were uh, in other titles like share and savings for for procurement, where companies can put up their money up front and then get paid by savings down the road. That was actually a provision in the EGOV Act that was implemented, but not, uh, it it wasn't really, there there were issues with the implementation in terms of how share and savings is scored for agencies, like how they can actually budget for that. And um, so that kind of went by the wayside after a few years of trying, and people are still trying to bring it back. Uh, But there are, you know, any number of of both principles and programs that are in the statute that still exist. So on the whole, I'd I'd say uh, certainly a a good B plus, if if not A minus slash B plus.
0: I think on December 17th, we should get a whole bunch of those people together and have a big cake and just celebrate the anniversary of the back 20 is a big one.
2: Um, Yeah, no, it's great. And and, uh, there are a number of other observances of this. John Marshall's been doing a a series of interviews. I have the honor of of doing one with him, Kevin Landy, who was the Senate staffer, who was the primary drafter of the statute. I call myself one of the primary editors. Kevin was actually the one who who drafted a lot of the provisions, and um, uh, he was on. So so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of folks coming back together and remembering the, those those good old days.
0: It's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for doing it.
2: Thank you, Francis.
0: You can read more about the anniversary of the EGOV Act in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday, November 28th. Till then, have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.